0: Hey everyone, welcome to Emanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Listen to Romans, um, not listen, read Romans 12 with me. Ready? One, two, three, go. And seek to show hospitality. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, um, man, I'm taken back by that moment of generosity. I it honestly just came over me. Um, and I felt immediately in that moment, not just the generosity horizontally, but the, the, the generosity vertically. Um, how much you loved me, knew me, um, wanted to give to me even though I didn't deserve it. I, I noticed in that moment and even here reminded today the riches of your glory, the way you lavish your love. And so would you do that now? Would you remind us of the relationship that we have with you this morning? Would you remind us of the relationship that you want to have with people here this morning who don't have one with you? Would you remind us of the love that you have shown and communicated in the Lord Jesus, such that we might be refreshed, renewed in our desire to love others? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, um, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, Uh, I just want to say, like, we're really honored that you're here. Um, It's no light thing to come into a church or a gathering like this, perhaps not knowing someone or maybe coming with a friend. And so seriously, thanks for entrusting to us a moment of your life, uh, maybe a milestone or even just a day on your journey spiritually. Um, We're grateful for you um, that you're here and pray that um, you wouldn't see, because you won't see it, perfection in us. <laughs> we are a very imperfect people, um, but you, you will maybe see the perfection of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. Hey, I, I want to start our time this morning doing, um, I guess, organizing my table here, doing a little bit of show and tell. Um, so, uh, listen, listen. I have moved a lot over the last 12 years, but somehow I have a way of like hanging on to different things. Maybe I'm like, I don't know. I just, I'm, you know, nostalgic like that or whatever. But listen, this right here, this this little goofy card is actually a little soccer player that um, is like, I don't know, collaged together. and And this right here is a letter that, my ex-girlfriend at the time, now wife and mother of my three kids, sent me. And uh, she sent it to me. We grew up when you wrote letters, right? When you passed notes in school. Like, um, but she sent it to me because I had honestly fallen down deeper and deeper and deeper into the mess my first year of college, and had all sorts of trouble academically and with the sport I played, soccer, and with relationships. And when she wrote, she wrote writing scripture and inviting me to reconsider Jesus. And it was the letter like this and the book that she sent thereafter that I opened and then a teammate caught me reading that landed me into a church plant that looked about like this. Um, and the reason I got to that church plant was because there was a guy named Andrew who didn't pay a lick of attention to me until he saw me reading a devotional book and was like, hey, that guy needs some help, and I did. And so he ended up taking me to a church plant. We would meet every Sunday in Degelman Circle, um, and he would pick me and some other students up and take us to church and then take us to a student ministry. But then every Sunday thereafter, once I had a car at school, I would meet in Degelman's circle and pick up students and then take them with me to church, bringing my classmates along. And then I have this one right here. This one is a really tattered book, but it's deeply meaningful to me because it was the first study I really did that helped me understand the gospel. And this guy who was an intern at the church plant um, invited me and some other guys to wake up at the crack of dawn and meet him for breakfast at the farmhouse. So it was Texas French toast for $2. So, I mean, it was college budget style. And we would meet there every week reading through this and wrestling with what is God's grace? What does it mean that I can be lost in religion as well as lost in irreligion? What does it mean that Jesus is all that I need? Now, listen. I keep these sort of mementos, as it were. Um, But the mementos themselves only mean something because they're tied to a relationship. They remind me of people. And there are far many more people that I could tell you about. But in life, and especially in the kingdom of God, relationships matter. Relationships matter. And so... For a Christian, we are to be building new relationships. We are to be extending ourselves in existing relationships because the very image, we are made in the image of of a God who is generous relationally, who so longed for relationships, so extended himself that he would come as a human being and dwell among us that we might know him and have relationship with him. Relationships matter. But here's the deal sin in our world, the brokenness that you all have experienced means that relationships are kind of complicated. (laughs) It means that we are, even though relationships are designed to be a source of security, a, a, a source of strength to us, it means that we are incredibly fragile relationally, right? We are fragile relationally. And it's one of the reasons that relationships, while they should be filled with love and with security, oftentimes can be filled with quite the opposite. And the old saying becomes too that true, that familiarity breeds contempt. Listen to what Pastor Rich Perez, who I had the privilege of bumping into a few weeks ago when I was in Philadelphia. um, He says this, That old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, is based on the idea that if we stick around long enough to experience the little good, the hopelessly bad, and the really ugly of people or things, we won't like what we see, and we'll decide to run in the opposite direction. We'll hold a grudge, we'll speak ill of them, or hold them at a distance until we feel we've earned the right to be close again. Listen. Listen sometimes the closest people to you are the hardest people to love. Sometimes the relationships you have are the hardest ones to keep. Relationships can be fragile relationships were designed to be just the opposite. But when, think about it, back to the original two relationships. When Adam and Eve eat that forbidden fruit in the garden, what happens to them? All of a sudden, within minutes, Adam's turning on Eve, blaming him for the wrong that he, blaming her for the wrong that he's done. And and Eve then is blaming this snake animal thing for the wrong that she's done. And they're hiding from God. All of a sudden, relationships are completely fractured. And ever since then, we've lived in a world where we need God's provision relationally. I mean, we need God's provision for relationships every day. But for sure, in the difficult conversations and situations, we sometimes get a clue to how relationally fragile we are, right? I mean, just think for a moment. Case in point is the way many of my white brothers and sisters feel whenever we start talking about race and privilege and injustice. How much does fragility enter in there? We are relationally fragile, and it's not just white folks, it's not just Anglos, but all of humanity is fully fragile, relationally. And perhaps if you're too strong relationally to admit this, maybe think about how often you're fearful in a relationship, or maybe how often you're fickle in a relationship, choosing to show love one moment and then not the other. We are fragile relationally. So much so that we try and fill the holes relationally with other things. I mean, isn't it the case that the gospel of pleasure has promised you that you could fill with a substance something that's only meant to be filled with people? Isn't the gospel of comfort such that It promises you, it misleads you, saying, hey, if you would just close yourself off from others, then the pain would go away. Not realizing that the greatest kind of torture is really isolation. Or maybe the the gospel of approval. Deceiving you into the lie, thinking that all that others really want is the you that pleases them. We are a people in need of God's provision when it comes to relationships. But as Pastor Rich begins to dream, and he has me dreaming a little bit, and his longings for a people connect with some of my longings even for us as a people. What if familiarity didn't breed contempt? Right, I mean, that's the pattern of the fall after all, right? Where, where fragile relationships get sort of distorted into these fickle relationships that all of a sudden break down and we begin to have a difficult time loving the people that are closest to us. But what if, rather than familiarity breeding contempt, what if the church sort of rose up with the resources of redemption in hand in relationships? I mean, what if we, rather than being exponential and trying to sort of do something grand wanted to be faithful and fruitful where we are? What if rather than being mesmerized by all these movements and fancy things that go, what if we began to be more present making disciples with the people God's placed in our lives? Like what if we began to really believe that the law and the Lord both said to love our neighbor rather than show contempt? our neighbor. Relationships matter in the kingdom of God. And perhaps you're wondering this morning, like someone did in the scriptures, and who is my neighbor? Well, let's talk about it. There was a lawyer, not the kind that practice, you know, law like an attorney nowadays, but a lawyer of the Old Testament who knew the law back and forth in Jesus' day that came up to him and said, hey, I know you're talking about, about loving God and loving neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And before we get to that little story, it's actually kind of a well-known one, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory of the Good Samaritan. Because I think it helps you see that not only are we fragile relationally, we are freed relationally. Okay, the backstory of the Good Samaritan is pretty interesting, all right? You see in it that Jesus is not just sort of a miracle worker, but he's an amazing teacher and a really brilliant leader. So if you you look in Luke chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, you see Jesus send the original 12 that were following him. Verse one, it says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they come back then after Jesus sends them out to sort of do some teaching and some ministry, they come back and they're like, yo, Jesus, it worked, right? Like we, like we, just, we just did this stuff. We told people about the kingdom of God. They, like, they responded, they wanted to hear. People got healed and stuff happened. It worked. So much so that Jesus' 12 are actually the ones who begin to gather this massive following to Jesus. There's 5,000 men, the the text says, which probably leads to more like 20,000 people that because of them going to the surrounding towns all converge upon Jesus. And Jesus is teaching 20,000 people his voice either reflecting off the waters or down the mountainside and they're getting hungry and so he feeds them. Literally, I mean, probably with like what are the equivalent of some saltines and some minnows. He makes bread and some fish multiply and multiply such that it feeds a multitude. And then as he's debriefing with the 12, notice how he wants the smaller group again, not the crowd. And he asks them, hey, who do the crowd say that I am? And then who, who, do, who do you, the 12, say that I am? And then finally Peter, the one, says, you are the Christ. But then he keeps going and Jesus takes not the crowds but the three onto the mountaintop. Why? Because relationships matter to Jesus. So he took the three with them to see his glory on the top of the mountain. And then in the beginning of chapter 10, which we'll get into the Good Samaritan in a minute, the 72 are sent out. And they're sent out in like the exact same fashion. Look at this. It's like a repeat of what happened earlier. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, how did 72 get there? Well, think about it. If he sent them out two by two in pairs of six and then they went to towns and then they started gathering people, I wonder what six by... 12, bingo, 72. There was a method. It was relational. The 12 went out, gathered 12 themselves, brought them back to Jesus, and now you've got 72 on mission with Jesus. And they're then sent out to these surrounding towns and the same thing happens. They're like, Jesus, it works. It works so well. The kingdom of God is there and moving and they cannot believe it. And what are they to do when they enter a town? Well, when they enter a town, they probably should like go see where the, the, the power players are, find who's got the nicest crib, work their way up to the influencers in the top. Nope. whoever receives you, stay. Don't go house to house, stay receive serve be fed minister why because relationships matter to Jesus he didn't want them going one place to the next he wanted them to put down roots in a town establish a headquarters relationally and then they come back again the 72 giving report of all that God had done through them I wonder what Jesus is doing this time. Maybe he's just like chilling, like enjoying a little bit of time knowing they're doing some of the work because he's got a lot of work to do ahead of him. I don't know what he's doing, doesn't say. But when they come back, he rejoices. Look at verse 21. He rejoices and says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see the relationships there? It's not as if it all hinged on these disciples and their ability to make stuff happen, their ability to do ministry, their ability to build relationships. Jesus clearly says, my father and I reveal our identity to someone. But it's not as if God's revealing to people apart from their work of relationship building and of doing ministry. The two are going together hand in hand. And then at this point, the lawyer comes up and goes, I got a question. Check out this cat. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus said to the lawyer, Or, no, I said to the Lord, You have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. Did you catch the relationship there? Right relationship with God, loving God is supposed to lead to right relationship with others, loving others well. God is after both the vertical and the horizontal. And if that were the case, For most Christians, perhaps the name of Christianity might have a better name in our culture. If we were more loving to those around us, perhaps the standing of Christianity would begin to rise again. But no matter if it does or doesn't, the command is clear to love God and to love others. But let's read on. But desiring to justify himself the lawyer says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus replies with a story, a timeless one. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him passed by on the other side, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, I'm not going to study this line by line with you because I want to show you the point of it. I'd love to dig into the weeds of this story at some point, but not this morning because we've got more to do. But think about this for a minute. This man, so confident in his own ability, says, who is my neighbor that I might be righteous? So confident in his relationships, perhaps. So ignorant of his own fragile state says, I can love others in a way that justifies me before God. When the story points to the incredible brokenness relationally. It points to the priest who won't love this man falling. It points to the Levite who won't love this one who's fallen by robbers. It points to the brokenness clearly present in our world. And some of you, as it were, if you're to sort of take the metaphor along, have been robbed relationally through your life such that you are in very many ways beaten, bandaged, bruised relationally. But what is Jesus answering here? I mean strip away all that we can learn about Samaritans and their place as sort of a people that were looked down upon or what a priest is, what a levite is, strip away all the facts. Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? What's his answer? What's the point? My neighbor is whomever God puts in my path. My neighbor is whomever God puts in my path. It does not matter if that person appears to me dirty or in danger or different from me. My neighbor is whomever God puts in my path. And I wonder, who has God put in your path that it's hard for you to view as a neighbor? Who has God put relationally in your path that it's hard for you to love? Because chances are, that's the exact relationship that God wants his love and redemption to flow to. Think about this for a minute. If you're a Christian, redemption has come to you that it might flow through you relationally. Redemption's come to you. The word of redemption has come to you. This word of compassion, this word of mercy has come to you that it might flow through you. And that's because redemption travels through relationships. Redemption travels through relationships. It's not that redemption travels through religion. And listen, I got nothing against religion or institution building. In some ways, I'm, I'm in the business of building a church, an institution that serves as a container, a frame for relationships to happen such that redemption can flow, such that mercy lands its way into your heart and life, just as it has into mine. But, so I'm not against that sort of system building, but redemption flows through relationships. L- look at, This is the Levite. The Levite is a religious person of privilege, a a tribe chosen by God. And does redemption flow through him? No. Right? The priest. The priest is in a religious position. And does redemption flow through him? No. Redemption flows through the relationship of this Samaritan man to a Bandaged and bloody man fallen by robbers. Redemption travels through relationships. And now listen, if, if the king chose to reveal redemption relationally, who are we to choose a different method? Like could we cut it up, cut up the message to the point where it's just a concept to be apprehended? Could we trim it down to a tweet just to be sounded out to the world? Could we shorten it so that it would just be simple for us to signal in some way? We mince the method of Jesus when he's chosen a very clear way for grace, mercy, mercy, and redemption to travel. It's through relationships. But for some of us here this morning, redemption has landed for you. The gospel has dropped for you personally but it hasn't relationally. It's dropped for you personally because you have been reconciled with God. You're in right relationship with him because of the grace of Jesus, his compassion for you as the one needing needing bandages, you the one needing rescue. But the gospel is not dropped in your relationships. I wonder if your connection to Christ began to spill over to your connections with others, what would happen? What kind of ripple effect would take place? And I wonder if you're even now beginning to calculate the cost in some of those relationships, what would be the cost? Redemption travels through relationships because we are freed through relationship with God the Father. Look at this. This is 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See what kind of love the father has given to us and what's the effect of it? Well, this love of God is made manifest among us because God sent his son into the world, verse nine says, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the fancy Bible word for sacrifice, the payment of our due penalty. And then what is the effect of the love of God upon us? Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Love one another. Not only are we fragile relationally, not only are we freed in relationship with God the Father, but we are to be fruitful relationally. Jesus pursued relationship with us, and because he did, we have purpose in relationship with others. God's placed us in relationships for a reason, and this goes far beyond the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you look at Jesus' emphasis on relationships, they're everywhere. Like in Luke chapter 19, this is Jesus closing out his dinner with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. He, he hung out with those who were lost. Matthew 11, the son of man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, Jesus says. Or what about John 4, when Jesus crosses every known barrier and boundary, social, economic, gender, cultural, all barriers to meet this woman at the well who has so much stigma associated with her that she won't even gather with the other people to get water. Or what about in, um, what about in, Luke chapter eight, when Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue says, this important man, Jesus, come and heal. Come and heal my daughter, she's sick. And Jesus is making his way through the crowds to this man's house. And as he's making his way through the crowds, this woman touches his robe. And he feels power go out from him. And he stops the whole thing. There's a girl dying at the house. And he says, wait, somebody touched me. He's not content for power to just flow from him. He wants to know her because the person who would then follow him mattered. Relationships matter to Jesus. So much so that he spent time with those who didn't believe in the faith, who were outside of the camp. So much so that he was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors. What does that mean for us as we are to love others? And what does that mean for us in how we spend our time? What does that mean for us in the way that we view people and relationships? Perhaps we should take up the words of Rich Perez. His whole philosophy when it came to starting their church was to plant roots, make homes, build families, love neighbor, Trust Jesus and die well. A simple love, neighbors, plant ourselves in a place that's odd for a transient world like we have. So, what does it look like to love neighbor? On our last few moments, I want to just meditate on the passage you read on Romans 12. Let love be genuine, it says. Let love be genuine. You see, genuine love is a free love. Fake love, of course, is is always an impersonation of something. But he says, let love be genuine. And he goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. See, genuine love for others, for neighbor, for family and friends is an honest love. It's not a love that is just nice or that flatters. It's a love that tells the truth. A love that's able to separate good and evil. A love that encourages others to hold fast to what is good. Are you honest with the people whom God has put in your path? But not only is genuine love honest, it's humble. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now listen, family language is helpful here because I don't know about your family, but my family is sometimes hard to love. Right? I don't know if it's because I'm so much like them. I don't know if it's because like stuff has happened in our family. I don't know if it's because I didn't choose them. They're just there, but like family's hard to love. And so if you're gonna love family, you want you to, you need to have, you need to have Humility. You need to have humility. And if you're ever going to honor someone in a genuine way, of course you've got to be humble enough to stand in your place which is not the spot of honor for that moment and to honor someone else for what they have done or what they're doing. There's no cover-up when it comes to love. There's no hiding. Love that is genuine is sincere to our brothers and to our sisters. That word sincere is actually from the Latin word sincera, which means without wax, no cover-up. Just as you are. Are you humble with the people God has put into your path? Let's read on. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Love that is genuine is not hesitant. It's hearty. There's some zeal to it. There's, there's not sloth about it. It's not hesitant to show good to someone, but there's a real hunger and thirst to show goodness to others. This, this phrase could really be translated as set afire by the Spirit. There's something about true love that is ablaze. And and if there is a kind of love that is just reverent to God, that is powered by the Spirit, this sort of devotional love, but it doesn't divvy itself out relationally, that's not of the Spirit. The Spirit is motivating this fear and love of God that lands itself in love of neighbor. The two go hand in hand. And then... Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Genuine love is hopeful. It's hopeful for others. It prays for others. It's patient with others. Genuine love has this waiting quality about it as you sit with a friend or a coworker while they're going through something. And then finally, genuine love for neighbor is hospitable contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I mean, for our church, I've spoken of hospitality as the act of making room for someone. It's literally saying, hey, there's a seat next to me. Or the the act of moving towards someone, seeing someone across the room and saying, hey, I'm gonna go talk to them or I'm gonna invite them somewhere. It is making room and it is moving towards. But I love the way that Rich Perez talks about hospitality. He says, hospitality means extending to people the things in your life that refresh you the most. Oh, that's good. Like what refreshes you and are you willing to share it? There's generosity right there. Do you extend what refreshes you to the people that God has put in the path of your life? Listen, redemption travels through relationships and God wants to use us in order to extend his reign of mercy and grace and compassion in our world. For the kingdom of God to be manifest here among us. And so let's pray that God would use us even in our own fragility to be agents of freedom.